Uh, if you have your Bibles, go with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Usually, as you guys know, we have some sort of video bumper, kind of leads us into the sermon, kind of help with that transition time. We don't like to always use prayer as just a transition for the stage. Um, usually they're much shorter, but that one was fun, incredibly fun, so we decided to run it the whole way every week. Today will be the last week in this series, Broken People Helping Broken People. Uh, our desire has been, well, these past few weeks, to really talk about the idea of a culture of care, like a culture of grace-filled care, one where we desire each other to grow in faith and love of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we're willing to to have conversations, we're willing to spend time and resources, and we're willing to uh, to be used of God to help each other love and follow Christ, even having the hard conversations. We talked about being ministers of reconciliation, we talked about hospitality, what does it mean to be hospitable, what does it mean to be a minister of reconciliation, we talked about how really many of these things that you will be them Ministers of reconciliation, that is, people of hospitality, uh, really to the extent to which you know and believe in God's reconciling work and His hospitality shown to us. That, I mean, that's, it's not just our model. It's like we don't just look to God and say, okay, how is He hospitable and so we should be likewise, but like certainly we, we can do that and that's important. We need to do that, but it's more of a like, we are motivated out of this change and this work that God's done in us. And so we talked about those things as broken people helping broken people. We'll only help if we know that we are broken people helping broken people. We'll only ask for help. We'll only receive help. If we understand that we are broken people who need help. And so as we conclude this series, I am going to be in Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, and then starting next week, we will go back to, as is our typical custom, and that is working through books of the Bible, verse by verse or section by section, and we'll be in Jonah next week. We've been doing a lot of studying and reading in Jonah, and I'm s- super excited uh, to lead us through the book of Jonah. So I'd encourage you to be reading that. And There's only 48 verses. You should have read it at least 10 to 20 times by the time we get done uh, over the next. We're going to be in Jonah for about two and a half months, roughly. We'll see. There's like a week of flexibility in there somewhere. So with that said, I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 3, really the, the verses that we're going to concentrate on this morning. Starting in verse 12, he says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold 
our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, I want to acknowledge that even any one of us in this room, myself included, could have this evil, unbelieving heart. That we could do lots and lots of righteous, seemingly righteous acts. We could do lots and lots of things, of works that are seemingly in your name. And we could do them all, as the Pharisees did, with evil, unbelieving hearts. Father, I also recognize that it is only the Spirit, through your Word, that can bring these hearts to life. So, Father, I pray that that would move us towards humility and dependence and asking you, Father, please, reveal this to me if, if this is indeed me. And for those of us this room that have believing hearts that will persevere to the end. Father, I pray that you would use these words as part of that aid in perseverance. Father, we trust you. Believe that you are good. Father, please guide our hearts and minds in this next time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me, as kind of a way of introduction, echo some words from another pastor whose name's Jeff Vanderstilt. If you know him, great. If not, it's okay. Let me echo him. I am a believer. I'm an, let me back up. I am an unbeliever, and so are you. Wait. You're thinking, what are you doing preaching and pastoring a church if you're an unbeliever? And also, you don't really know anything about me. I mean, how can you say that I'm an unbeliever? You know, I've spent most of my life considering people to be in one of two categories. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. You either believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, or you don't. Okay, two categories. Now, I think after many years, I see that every single one of us is an unbeliever, including me, at least in some areas of our lives. Let me be clear. I do believe there are some who are regenerate children of God and others who are not. There are those who have been given new life through faith in Jesus and His work on the cross they are now new creations. And there are also there those who are still dead in their sins. Who will indeed spend an eternity in hell. So when I say we are all unbelievers, what I mean is we still have places in our lives where we just simply don't believe God. 
There are spaces where we don't trust his word and don't believe what he accomplished in Jesus Christ is enough to deal with our past or what we are facing now in this moment or what we'll be facing in the next. We don't believe his word is true or his work is sufficient. We don't believe. We're unbelievers. I struggle with unbelief on a daily basis. Let me give you some examples. I have a conversation with my wife and she points out something I'm not doing well at. And I hear the word failure in my head. I try to lead a good conversation about the Bible at the dinner table with my children But instead of eager beavers on the edges of their seats, I get slouched bodies and rolling eyes. Bad father. I teach on being a good neighbor. One who knows the stories of the people who live on your street. But since I've moved into my house six years ago, I know very little of them. And more like stories of failed attempts to get to know them. I hear the word hypocrite. See, I slip in and out of believing God's word about me and trusting in his work for me. Jesus gave his life to make me a new creation. He died to forgive me of my sins and change my identity from sinner to saint, from failure to faithful, from bad to to good, and even righteous and holy. But I forget what He has said about me. And I forget what He has done for me. And sometimes it, it isn't even forgetfulness. Sometimes it's just plain unbelief. Like I know it, but I don't believe it. I'm an unbeliever. Not every moment, of course, and not in an ultimate sense. But I have those moments. So do you. I'm certain of it. End of my paraphrase. You see, unbelief is simply internal rebellion that says God cannot be trusted. Unbelief is what's happening on the inside that says God cannot be trusted. Let's read. I I want to read to you a few verses actually that are leading up to the verses, our primary text for today. But in verse 7 through 11 of Hebrews chapter 3, you could go back and read Psalm 95. This is, he's, large, he's quoting from Psalm 95 here. And Psalm 95 is a recollection of what's going on in Exodus. Okay, So you've kind of got three spots in the Bible. If you want to study this passage well, you should go back and look at those passages like Exodus 14, 15, 16, and Psalm 95. So he says here in Hebrews 3, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today... 
If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. I was so much, like I had a hard time, just for the record, I cut like 1,500 words uh, trying to, and I'm still like 1,000 words over on my manuscript this morning, so bear with me. I'm going to try and talk fast. So much here, so much that we're going to miss even. But just a few highlights here in this particular passage, 7 through 11. God's addressing always requires a response. God's addressing, when God speaks, like you and I don't get to just hear that and remain neutral. It always requires a response. It, it brings about some response. It's either positive or negative. There's never a, a neutral. It either moves your heart forward, your heart or either responds by moving towards softness and dependence in the Father, love of the gospel, so on and so forth, or a softened heart, or it moves towards a hardening. He says this, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So he's saying God's addressing requires a response. You see, we can either respond, again, in unbelief slash disobedience, or we can respond in belief and obedience. And the danger, right? Start hearing this, this danger is a hardened heart like Israel's in the wilderness. Hear that day, you're going to hear this multiple times this morning. You see, unchecked unbelief, right? And we're going to define that as we go. Unchecked unbelief led to Israel's hardened heart. So let's talk about this hardening of heart. What's he mean? Like Israel's hardened heart. This is in this context of this rebellion. The idea of the hardening of heart is basically to become stubborn, obstinate, so that you will not believe the truth. Like, that's the context. Stubborn, obstinate, hard heart in this context, I will not believe the truth. I have no desire to know the truth, to believe the truth, to live by the truth. It's basically this really vivid metaphor that describes a refusal to do God's will. Like, to hear it, to do it. It's a refusal. It's this hardened heart. I mean, think about Pharaoh, right? His heart was hardened. And what he refused to do? To let God's people go. This is this idea of this hardening of heart. You know, it's most often in the Scriptures used to warn God's people not to repeat the sins of those who have gone before them. Like, look back. Don't harden your hearts and sin and live like these who have gone before you. I guess for you guys. These who have gone before you. So let me draw for you a little bit of a picture of Israel's disobedience. And I'm not trying to pick on them. Just That's the context. I'll give you three kind of, well, four kind of examples. You know, Israel passed through the Red Sea after being set free from Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. 
And the Egyptians followed, right, in pursuit and were swallowed up by the Red Sea. They come out of, not the Egyptians, but the Israelites, come out of the Red Sea singing songs of deliverance, praising God for their miraculous deliverance. And they come out, if you go back, read Exodus 14 and 15, they're anticipating their possession of a promised land. It'd be theirs. I mean, all that that represents, I don't have time to, express, to, to describe, but it certainly means rest. Think about slaves, promised land, God's rest. They come out of the Red Sea singing songs and anticipating this. They come to Marah where the water is too bitter to drink. And what do they do? They begin to grumble. They demand to know what they're going to drink. I mean, think about this. They were delivered through the Red Sea. Now they demand to know what they are going to drink. God instructs Moses to throw a tree into a tree into the water to sweeten the water, and they drink. Then, about a month after their deliverance, the people begin to grumble about their food. About their food, like they have already. Here's what's happened: they have already forgotten who they once were, slaves in Egypt. For those of you familiar with Ephesians, they have forgotten, like the parallel for us, we have forgotten Ephesians chapter 2 and the first handful of verses there. They have forgotten who they once were as slaves in Egypt. They have already forgotten the horrors of the slavery. They now speak of it longingly. I mean, think about it. Go back and read. They, they, they think of Egypt and this has only been in like a month. And they're looking back going, if we could just go back to Egypt, everything would be okay. At least in terms of food. And then read the text. What do they do? They accuse Moses and Aaron of bringing them into the wilderness to kill them. The very people who were used of God to deliver them from bondage, they accuse them of working against them. But then what does God do? He provides them with manna and quail. He feeds them. He feeds them. You see, their unbelief, you watch it, it grows one step at a time. With every time of turning from unbelief in God, their Savior, not not trusting in Him, to to other means of provision, their hearts are hardened piece by piece until one day, until one day, they finally make it to the land of Canaan. Right? Remember as the story goes, they send in the spies and they come back out. They're on the edge of the land of rest. The promised land. And I think you can argue that ultimate unbelief happens. Their hearts were so hardened by now that God's promise of this land, this place, this rest is rejected. So we can't do it. We can't do it. They did not grasp how gracious and kind that God had been to them and how serious their rebellion against Him in that moment was. 
He didn't believe. Surely God didn't mean that we could enter this rest. You see, their punishment, right? If you read the, 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 the narrative, their punishment tells us of the seriousness. We're reminded of this in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11. He says, And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That describes the seriousness of their unbelief. Their lack of trusting the Father. They forfeited the land of Canaan, the promised land. They forfeited it. You see, they, they saw God's works. They had this original confidence. Think about the confidence they had, or it had something akin to this original confidence. Think about the confidence they had in God when they put the blood of the Passover lamb on the door frames the night of the death angel in Egypt. Think about the kind of Oh, like the kind of trust and belief that that would take. The kind of confidence. The night that the Lamb's blood covered and protected them from the wrath of God. Think about the confidence they had in God when they ran from the chains of slavery. Think about the confidence they had in God the moment they went through the baptism of the Red Sea. But they failed to hold on to this original confidence and instead exchanged it for unbelief. We cannot enter the land of rest, the land of Canaan. Surely God doesn't mean what He says. He's not going to give this to us. The people in there are too big. Let us stay out here, for the grass seems to be greener and safer here. God cannot be trusted. That's the act. That's the, that's the underlying, the internal rebellion that is taking place as they stand at the gate of the entry place to rest. Now, lest we think this is just an Israelite problem, let us read on. He says in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, lest there be in any of you, I would repeat to us, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Next, I want you to see that your heart, my heart, will always wander toward unbelief. Apart from the work of God, apart from His care, apart from the power of the Word, apart from the Spirit, our hearts will always wander toward unbelief. I want to. There's an interesting dynamic here that I don't have time to get into, but certainly those who are in Christ have this new heart that right begins to desire God and. And to want God. And so there's that. But then there's also this part that's not yet finished yet. So still desiring evil. And still desiring selfishness. And and all these things. But the tendency. Like our proclivity. The biblical norm. Is that we are going to wander towards unbelief. I, I don't know about you. But 
like each day, just experientially, each day of my life, it takes intentional effort to, to walk my heart towards belief as where it naturally wanders into unbelief. Like I don't, like you know what I'm saying? Like you just have those times where you just kind of wake up going, wow, well, I'm not believing. This is true. I'm not trusting God. He says this. I want you to pick up on this. Take care. Take care. Like, that's not just the author saying, well, you know, take care. Have a nice day. No, he's saying, like, be careful. Be warned. It's a sharp warning. Take care. The danger is there whether or not you recognize it. You see, the threat to God's people of this unbelief that would lead to this hardened heart is real. Every waking moment, our hearts, every waking moment, our hearts will naturally gravitate toward unbelief. You see, the danger is that any one of us might possess an evil heart of unbelief that turns away from the living God. Like, when he's writing this, he's not saying like, hey, church, you people over here within that church, you might have an evil, unbelieving heart. No, he's saying, you all, take care lest you have an, uh, an evil, unbelieving heart. You're probably familiar with the term apostasy. I don't have, again, kind of another thing. I just don't have time to treat today, but suffice it, hopefully, with these words for now. Our conviction, I say our, like ours generally as a church and certainly Russ and I's, is, is that one who is truly saved, one who is truly redeemed, will indeed persevere to the end. That the Spirit's sealing work guarantees that. But what I think this also means, and I think what he's alluding to here, is that at any moment, your unbelief, could really just be the first step in a revealing that your heart never truly was redeemed. Nevertheless, the warning of apostasy is, is real. Like you could, like, in a sense, you could fall away. Again, I don't have time to, to explain that. I wish I could, but I, th- I think the, 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 the thought here is more you know, if you put this against passages like Ephesians 2 or Ephesians 1, right? We are sealed and the Spirit is our guarantee. But I think part of our guarantee is this warning of apostasy. Like, you Christian, like, don't, don't just stand there and pretend like everything's going to be just fine. Like, you need to be warned. Like, you need to take care. You need to watch it. Lest you realize you have this evil, unbelieving heart. Think about passages like in the Gospels where Jesus is, you know, talking about the, the day of judgment, right? And God says, you know, but they, they say, but we did these works in your name. And he says, but, but depart from me, you evil doers of iniquity. So there's, there's this sense in which we have, to, we have to be careful. We have to take care lest we realize, maybe not even until the day of judgment, that we have an evil, unbelieving heart. I know that that's scary. 
At least I hope it's scary. Like, I hope that that kind of makes you go, oh, oh, oh. it does me. We'll keep going. The sinful, unbelieving heart. If you go back and read Psalm 95, this is picking up on this idea of this hardening of heart. He picks up on that language from Psalm 95. You see Psalm 95 like weaved in and throughout this passage, not just in 7 through 11. But Numbers 14, 11 says this, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of the signs that I have done among them? I just want you to pick up here that this idea of evil community comes in here. How, these, these, these evil people, they refuse to enter the promised land. It's not just I don't believe God. It's a, that's the internal aspect. The outward fruit of that is we will not enter. So let me give you, again, we're kind of thinking about this hardening of heart, this danger of unbelief. Let me give you an illustration. The man caught in an affair, he's confronted. Yet in his flesh, he doesn't want to forsake the affair. He reasons. There are other interpretations of these passages. After all, God wants me to have this. He wants me to be happy. As the sin and deception continues, the sinner eventually comes to reason. Well, that's just your interpretation of the Bible. I believe God wants me to do this. So I will continue in my plan, in my doing. You know, I mean, that's an extreme example. But there are times every day where we use some sort of similar logic to justify some kind of sin that we want to perpetuate, that we don't want to give. It's this hardening of hearts, this evil, unbelieving heart. And you see, I want you to see, this is the deceitfulness of sin that hardens hearts to the place where disobedience is not just like okay, but it seems logical and even compelling. And what he's saying is that we all are in danger of this. Let me give you some kind of contextual observations and tendency and just understand kind of the tendency of unbelief in community, whether it's here or other churches. The tendency of unbelief in community. Like hearts, think of it this way, hearts that are being hardened, that are in the process of hardening. Again, all of our hearts are in the one direction or the other. It's either softening towards God or hardening towards God. First of all, unbelieving hearts tend to attract other unbelieving hearts. People with hearts that are hardening tend to follow, tend to attract, tend to gather around those with hearts that are hardening. Why? Why? Because belief is unifying. You say, well, you're talking about unbelief. Yes, unbelief is just simply the exchange of belief from the wrong thing to the, or from the right thing to the wrong thing. So in a sense, unbelief is unifying. I say that as a warning to us. 
that we be very careful. I'm going to get to that. I'm going to play that out a little bit more in a second. Why, why is that dangerous? Why is that scenario dangerous? You see, hardened hearts tend to only want to hear from people who they feel affirmed in, in their hardened state. We want to feel affirmed in that. Right? We want company. Evil likes company, right? I, I see this in my own heart, in my own life. Like, there are times when I don't want to go talk to someone that I know I need to because they're willing to tell me what I need to hear and I just simply don't want to hear it. Hardened hearts tend to only want to hear from people they feel affirmed and in their hardened state. I would encourage you to ask this question. Do those with hardened hearts tend to flock to me? A follow-up question to that would be this. Do they find solace and rest for their unbelief in my presence? Just, again, to make sure we understand we're tying us back to the text. This is not Matt's ideas. He's telling us to exhort one another away from unbelief. So if they find solace for their unbelief in my presence, then I'm in direct contradiction of this passage. Listen, the result is actually the opposite. So here's take care, and he's going to tell us to exhort here in just a second. Exhort one another. Take care lest this happens. So if you're not exhorting, then what's going to happen? The unbelief's going to happen. So I would argue that actually quite the opposite, that if they find solace for their unbelief in my presence with the words that I say, then actually I could be used of Satan to actually perpetuate the hardening of that person's heart further. To me, that's horrific. Surely, there, surely there's right times to say certain things and, and, and wisdom to be had, to be used, and when to exhort and all that. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just the general flow. It's the general environment around you, one where someone like this could find solace. Listen, they should only find solace. Like, here, I, I don't do well at this. I want to do well at this. But I want people to find solace around me only through an exalted Savior. That when we come together, when we sit, when we sit around the table, that even in their sin or un- whatever it is, that Jesus would be exalted And when that happens, that person's heart would either be softened or would be shown to be the hardened heart that it is. Again, that's here. He's going to talk about this sharing in Jesus, holding firm to our original confidence. So hardened hearts, 
They should only find solace in an, or hardening hearts or unbelieving hearts. They should only find salted, uh, uh, solace in an exalted Jesus who will redeem their hardened hearts. I want to point them towards that, even if it's uncomfortable for them. I also want to, for you to notice just practically here that, that a hardening heart, a heart that is in the process of hardening, may not look at the beginning like someone who is wholesale rejecting their faith in God. It doesn't just go from, oh, I love Jesus and I love the church to, to oh, I reject it. I mean, sometimes it does, but even in those cases, like there's an internal lengthy process of unbelief that results in this. Like this hardening heart, this heart that is unbelieving, believing at the beginning may simply look like making stupid decisions. It may look like them following lies and not seeking the truth. It may look like self-justification. Like I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to justify me getting what I want. So, so I just want us to be careful as we're thinking about hardened hearts, like that we don't narrow it to just our experience and our view, but a but a broader and, and Lord willing, a more biblical understanding of this. So the tendency of unbelief in community there. Next, the unbelief is not simply, hear this, unbelief is not simply lack of trust or passive disbelief, but is instead a positive refusal to believe, an active disobedience to God. I mean, understand, right? God is worthy of adoration for all that He is and all that He has done. And so when we believe something of Him that is less than what He is, at least willfully, right? I mean, we don't understand the extent of His omnipotence and His righteousness. Like, we don't understand the... But when we cease to, like want to ascribe that to him and say he is not as trustworthy as I thought he was or not as good as I thought he was. We are saying something wrong. I want you to notice here, again, underneath the same idea, that it's a, an active, a, a positive refusal to believe, an active disobedience. Notice that unbelieving is lumped together with evil. An evil, unbelieving heart. And it's this active unbelief that leads you to fall away from God. You see, an unchecked, hardened heart, or hardening heart, will lead to the realization one day, and maybe, again, like I said before, not until judgment, maybe not even until judgment, that you were never one of genuine faith. This is the danger. And when I say unchecked, what I mean by that, like, certainly we all, like, venture, like, our hearts kind of, sometimes become a little hardened, and, but then through the work of the Spirit and repentance and faith, and our heart is softened back towards God, and then, and then maybe we go a few days or a couple minutes, and our heart kind of goes back, and, and then repentance and faith, and, and God pulls our heart and softens our heart. That's what I mean by, like, a checked one, like one that is working through this covenantal relationship with God. 
but one that doesn't, one that isn't operating in repentance and faith and this, this sharing in Christ and holding fast to the original confidence, one that's not doing that is going to get harder and harder and harder and harder. This is the danger. This should humble us. Listen, this should make us cry out to God these words. Oh, help my unbelief. Oh, help my unbelief. Please persevere my faith. For the warning here tells me, Father, tells me, your warning to me tells me that my heart is prone toward unbelief. Oh God, help my unbelief. But I want you to notice here, I want you to notice, even going back into Exodus and going back to the Israelites, God is so kind. God is so kind. I want you to think back again to Israel. God had made this covenant with the Israelites, right? He made this covenant, like, I'm going to do this with my people. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless the world through your seed. I'm going to crush Satan through this bloodline. Throughout all of Israel's disobedience, throughout all of their unbelief, God continues to be faithful. He continues to exhort the people, to encourage the people. (coughs) Excuse me. He, there we go. He continues to care for them. He continues to deliver them. All within this covenantal relationship between God and His people. You see, I think one of the primary means of preserving our belief is the work of the Spirit and the Word through the covenant body of Christ. Let me say that again. And maybe this should even be the next point, but God's primary means of preserving our belief is the work of the Spirit and the Word through the covenant body of Christ. Read verse 13. Read verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Next kind of big thought here is take responsibility. Here's the imperative. Take responsibility. You, me, let's take responsibility for the belief of other church members, of other people. You see, the belief of every member of the church is the responsibility of every member of the church, not just the elders, not just the pastors. He doesn't say here, leaders, make sure you exhort all of those in your flock. I mean, that comes later, but that comes, well, not later, it comes in another passage, and it comes later here too. Anyways, 
He's not saying that just to them. He's saying it to all of us. All of you. You have a responsibility for the belief of other members. What's he saying? All right, so we got danger, 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 danger. Remedy for danger. What is it? Mutual admonition. Mutual exhortation. Mutual encouragement. Mutual comfort. The remedy to this danger is this. Think, think again, this is God's provision for us. It's God's kindness to us. It's God caring for us. But exhort one another every day. Let me give you kind of a, an aside here. What are maybe an indicator in this context of that you are probably in sin, right? How about have a, a couple examples? You won't have conversations about an issue with a person or people you know won't agree with you. People who will exhort you. That's probably an indicator. Not, not saying wholesale always, but it probably is an indicator. I'm not willing to hear that. Maybe another indicator that maybe you're in sin and thinking about this within this context. Maybe, you spend crazy amounts of time in your mind arguing for your desires. Recently, I was listening to Paul Tripp, Paul David Tripp. He said, uh, he goes, you know, I've got a great inner lawyer, right? He, and then he goes, he backs up, he goes, no, wait a second. I've got a great law team in my heart that I can justify and argue any kind of defense that I need to accomplish whatever it is my heart desires. Like, so just think about it. Do you, do you find yourself like trying to like justify this and argue it around in your head? And <clears throat> probably danger. Or just like the Israelites, you begin to, for some crazy reason, dislike those who would exhort you. Just an aside. He's saying that the remedy to danger is this mutual admonition. So are we avoiding mutual admonition? That's, that's the assign. But we shouldn't. Like, it could mean death. An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's what it could be. But exhort one another. This is a grace to us. I want to encourage you, don't be afraid of the word exhortation here. We tend to shy away from because sometimes they're like, well, it means having all these hard conversations or being confrontational. And yes, sometimes the gospel it will require of you to be confrontational. But the, the semantic range of this word, the, the definition range of this word is one of warning, reproof, as well as encouragement and comfort. Warning, reproof, encouragement, and comfort. That's kind of a, a, a wide range. Sometimes a situation needs different approaches. It depends on what's going on in the person's life. And, and, and largely, it's a, it's a matter of wisdom in which approach you would use. Sometimes someone needs a firm warning or reproof. Sometimes they need that. Sometimes a person just needs encouragement or comfort. But as we will see, we all need spurred away from unbelief and toward right belief. So don't be afraid of the word exhortation. But he says we need exhorted every day. Why? Because sin 
is so deceitful. It's conniving. We talked about this in spiritual warfare terms at the end of Ephesians 6. Like sin is, has a magical way of twisting the truth. I, I hate to admire something, sound like I'm admiring something so wicked, but it's truly majestic. Like if you think about the ability of, of sin to just, just manipulate and control our hearts and then begin to manipulate and control the people around us and their hearts. Again, we can justify just about anything we want. And sin-hardened hearts cannot hear the truth. There's a passage off the top of my head, I think it's Psalm 112. It talks about idols having eyes but cannot see and ears but cannot hear and mouths but cannot speak and, and that these people who make them will become like them. The people who fashion these idols become like them having ears that cannot hear and eyes that cannot see and mouths that cannot speak. That's the idea here, that you have such a hardened heart eventually that you cannot hear the truth. But he says here that we are the body. Like again, understand, this is not just to general people. This is to a church. Saying that we are a body and we are to care for one another. So to make sure, here's the idea, to make sure that an evil heart of unbelief does not appear in any one of them, in any one of us, the community as a whole, as well as each member within it, is to be, hear me, vigilant and consistent in their care for others by mutual exhortation. Each member within this body is to be vigilant and consistent in our care for each other by mutual admonition. Again, we need to realize, we need to remember that just as in the garden with Adam and Eve, that unbelief, right, unbelief that God meant what He said and that God is our provider, that God is all that He has promised. That unbelief leads to death. That's what God promised Adam and Eve and He surely came. As I think about this in the context like of us caring for one another, as, a, uh, as us seeking mutual admonition, as Rusty's been saying over the past few weeks, if we simply like each other, then we will be willing to tolerate unbelief. Like we will be willing to let our brothers and sisters who are part of the family of God continue in their unbelief if we just simply like each other. But if we love each other as we are called to do, then we should, and we will, I believe, have this desire to lead our brothers and sisters to right belief and away from the impending danger of such. If we believe we are a family, a broken people helping broken people, what's it broken? And what are we, when we talk about broken people, how are we broken? One of the ways we're broken is that we, we tend towards unbelief. We tend towards unbelief and disobedience and we need each other to help pull each other back. To help, as I said earlier, each of us in the struggle of this repentance and faith and repentance and faith. 
Like, we weren't meant to do that on our own. Like, really, this passage is giving us the, the explaining, or at least implying the necessity of this in the body of Christ for every believer. <clears throat> so I want to say this. This is why we do so much of what we do as a church. Like, the, why, the way and why we've structured things certain ways and why we don't do certain programs and things like that, and, but we do kind of have certain ways in which we do things. I just want to refresh your mind and give you purpose in, and admonition in this. As we think about Sunday gatherings, that's why we do this. It's not just to be preached to, even though that's uh, a primary, uh, uh, of primary importance, but Sunday gatherings, are, we, we do this for the purpose of exhorting one another. So let me ask you this question. What do you do with the time before service? What do you do with the time before service? Before service begins. What do you do with that time? First of all, I want to admonish you to get here early. Not just on time. Early. Ever thought about getting here early so that you can pray with someone? Ever thought about getting here early so that you can find someone and see how they're doing before worship begins? How about getting here early so others sense the encouragement of your presence? How about after service? Does your mind just move on to the next task? Which I know, like, we have to tear down and set the stage back and pull everything. I, I get it. We kind of get on to business, if you will. But what about this? What about having a conversation with someone? Hey, how did that point in the sermon hit you? Or, hey, I'm st- how about this? How about I'm struggling with that point? Will you pray with me? Like, just immediately, like, after the service. Like, I'm struggling with this. Pray with me. Please, pray for me. It doesn't have to be long. It can be, if it needs to be. Listen, the next task should be this. How can I help my brothers and sisters with their unbelief? How can I get help concerning my unbelief? How about house gatherings? Right? If the belief of those around you, the belief concerning those around you, is that it's your responsibility to exhort them in belief, right? If, if, you believe that that, if you believe this text, then when you get together with the body of Christ, one of our primary responsibilities is to help each other's unbelief, then when you come into house gatherings, small group, what, how do you use that time? How do you use that time? Let me admonish you here. You should take good notes. You should study the passage so that when you come together, you have something to edify the body with beyond other means of like your presence that is certainly encouraging, bringing food, watching kids. Those are all encouraging and, and even exhorting in a way. But when we get down to the content of the Scriptures, what's the mentality it's easy for us to have this mentality of, I, I just come so that I can get. But what about this mentality of, I want to come so that I can bless. I want to come so that I can give. So that I can encourage and admonish. Broken people, helping broken people, that's what it means to be a part of the family of God. 
I want to encourage you in house gatherings. I know I'm guilty of perpetuating this in my house gathering, but it's not just a conversation of the people with the leader. It needs to be a conversation around the text from believers to believers. Lastly, our DNA gatherings. This is our prime, prime opportunity for you to give and receive help concerning your unbelief. You know, covenant community. I want to talk about this for just a moment. You know, as we welcome new members, which I'm excited, we have multiple families that we're going to be welcoming in and covenanting with over the next few weeks. So thankful for that and God's provision and all that that means. But when we do that, we, we, have, we do what we call covenant renewal time, right? We, we recite the covenant together, our church covenant, which for those of you who are not familiar with, it's just uh, kind of an explicit restatement of what the scriptures say according uh, when it comes to church and how do you live in community together. And so, for example, some of the parts of our covenant, particularly as it pertains to this, says this, we will spur one another on to love and good deeds, serve one another selflessly. We will share each other's joys and bear each other's burdens. Wow. We will edify one another with our speech. We will encourage one another with our example. We will humbly and gently confront one another and receive correction from one another. It goes on and on. You see, covenant community is built, though, on the back of grace. And it's continually fueled by grace. God's kindness to us, our undeserving favor, His undeserving favor. Sometimes it means covering over the offenses of others with love. Sometimes it means confronting an offense with love. But it always means being gracious. So let me give you this, in kind of heading towards the end here. Three items to remember when it comes to exhortation and persevering in faith. To read Hebrews 3.14, he says this, For we have come to share in Christ. We've come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. First thought, I'm just going to fly through these really quick, is this. Never forget the horrors of slavery to sin. This is easy for us to do. Like there's this struggle of God saying, yeah, you're not remembering the works that I've done, that I've set you free. The Israelites forgot the horrors of slavery. We too forget the horrors of slavery to sin. But we now have come to share in Christ. Second one there is that covenant community provides the rich context for the persevering of belief in the gospel. Again, look back to Israel. It's within this covenant with this people that God continued to care and exhort the Israelites. Like you see God's commitment, unwavering commitment. Now it's within this local body that the people are exhorted to care for each other. With exhortation. Listen, church. Covenant community provides the soil and the environment for hard conversations. 
if you're not able or willing to have hard conversations, then it's probably because we don't understand God's means of a people covenanted together. Last thought there is this. Love your brothers and sisters enough to exhort them to belief in Jesus. That's what being a part of a community of believers is, is loving them enough. Last one there. Exhort toward greater belief in the gospel. Exhort toward greater belief in the gospel. All right, Matt, where are you getting getting this from? Listen to verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. What's his exhortation? Take care. Exhort one another. For we have come to share in Christ. What do we exhort with? What do we exhort toward? What's the goal of our exhortation? Towards greater belief in God, particularly greater belief in and the good news of Jesus. Listen, if you exhort someone simply to law or to, to, to live in a certain way apart from Christ, then you're just teaching them to be legalistic. But exhorting one another to belief in the gospel and the subsequent obedience that comes, that is truly graciousness. Let me say this as well. You will only receive exhortation well if you are leaning into belief in the gospel. I, I was encouraged by what Rusty said last week or the week before or something like that. It said, remember, the cross has already let the cat out of the bag or already outed you, I think is what he said. Like the cross has already outed you as a sinner. Like there's nothing... Nothing that's hidden. God knows it all. Now, each of us may not know the depths of each other's sin, but God knows it all. And that's the one that should ultimately matter, right? Again, thinking about this, exhorting toward greater belief in the gospel, we must hold firmly till the end. He says this basic position. So we're going to hold firmly till the end this original confidence. What's he mean? means this, like this basic position or stance that was taken by your heart and mind when you first received the gospel. I'm a dreadful sinner in need of this glorious Savior. Forgive me. I trust in the work of your Son, Jesus. That confidence that stance of heart and mind. What we each need is for the other person around us to, the people around us to, exhort us to that. Hold fast to that. Hold fast to that. Again, we are broken people in need of others to push us towards grabbing more firmly upon the gospel, our original confidence. And we are surrounded by broken people who need us to help them grab more firmly upon the gospel, their original confidence. See, there's no way to heaven apart from God, particularly His work in the good news of Jesus as the one who died and paid the price 
for your sin. This is something we all need to hear every single day. It is something that we all need to respond to every single day. I don't mean we are getting resaved, but it is something our hearts are either responding to and grasping a hold of more firmly, or we are responding to in unbelief. Let me give you an illustration heading here in closing. Rusty and I, a week ago, had a wonderfully hard yet gospel-saturated conversation with another pastor. Well, afterwards, I told my pastor friend John, whom many of you know, that this conversation had went well. He called me shortly after and said this, Please share with me your affections and how they have been increased for our Savior Jesus. I want to share in that joy with you. Tell me why I should worship Him more. Right? That was my phone call, right? Tell me this. And I'm just sitting there like going, ah, how do I do that? Right? I mean, it's, for many of us, that would be a weird phone call. But it shouldn't be a weird phone call. Like, this should be the norm. Tell me why I should worship Jesus. I thought there was a clap there for a second. Like a hallelujah. It's just his water bottle. <laughs> Amen. There we go. Come on. It should be the norm. That should be the kind of conversations we're having all the time. It calls me, and I'm kind of flabbergasted for a moment. Blah, 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 blah. Like, let me ask you this. Why would anyone do this? Like, he wasn't calling to, to get details of the conversations. He wasn't calling for any of that. He was calling to tell me why I should worship Jesus. I want to share in this with you. Why? Why would anyone do this? I had to reflect on this. I think, first of all, because he recognizes his brokenness and that he needs others to remind him of this confidence that he should have in the gospel. Remind me. I have a wandering heart. Because he rec- second, because he recognizes that I'm a broken person and that I need to rehearse the reasons why I can maintain confidence in the gospel. That I need to do that. That I need to rehearse these every day. At the end, he says to me, so what you're telling me is that Jesus was working in ways that you didn't even expect. And even working in ways that you couldn't. <laughs> and, and John knows me well enough. To, he's saying these for a reason. I didn't, I just took it in the moment, took his exhortation, reflected on it later. Here's what he was doing. He was reminding me of my unbelief that Matt thinks that he has to play the role of the Holy Spirit. He was reminding me of my belief as well. That Jesus is the one fit for that job and he is worthy of praise for it. You see, church, we are broken people. Our bodies are surely broken, but our heart, even though they are made new, they are not wholly restored yet. One moment we are clinging to belief in Jesus and the next moment we believe as though something else there is that we cannot live without. Our brokenness says that we need something outside of ourselves to make us whole. This is one of the beauties of the body of Christ. He has given us the body of Christ to help make us whole.
we each, towards each other, piece by piece, put right the pieces of the heart and the belief of the heart spurring each other on. But you know, our hope is even greater than that because, and thankfully it is, because we will fail. So our ultimate hope is not in the church. Our ultimate hope is someone else who experienced brokenness. He did not experience brokenness like we do, right? For his heart always believed and always trusted the Father. Never wavered. However, he lived among our brokenness. He saw the struggle. He had compassion on us. He loved with grace and mercy those who were to be his co-heirs upon adoption by the Father. His body, though, was broken. Literally. But not because of anything he had done. But because of what we had done and His love for us. His body, His personhood has absorbed the very wrath of God that was due to us, you and me, for the very brokenness that characterizes our every moment. His body was broken so that we as we repent and trust this very news, would be given a new heart that one day will have all the brokenness taken away. All of it. You know, we're going to partake of the Lord's table today in communion. Bobby and Stephen are going to go and come forward for us. And it's at the Lord's table that we're reminded that we are broken people who serve a Savior who though He did not deserve it, took the punishment for our brokenness, for our struggle with unbelief that is sin. His body was broken for us. You see, taking the Lord's Supper is meant to unify us together that we are broken people who worship a Savior who was broken for us. Let me remind you that as we take the Lord's Supper, that's only for those who are walking in repentance and faith. That means those who who have not believed and placed their faith in the work of Jesus, I want to encourage you to just watch. Just watch a people be thankful and celebrate the brokenness of their Savior that would make their brokenness eventually whole. But if you are a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you that if there is something that you're unrepentant for, that you confess that now. You don't have to wait. Confess it now and partake with us. Back in the text, he says this, 
For we have come to share in Christ if we hold to our original confession. Let us come and share in Christ. Let's pray. Father, God, thank you. Thank you for your the brokenness of your son, Jesus. Father, though he was not broken in the same way we are, for our brokenness is one of tainted and perpetuated by sin and disobedience. But Father, his brokenness was on our behalf, taking upon him the wrath of God, your wrath, Father, that was due to us. Father, oh, help our belief. Why would we chase after other things when we have that to feast upon? When we have that to, to sink our minds and our hearts into? When we have the good news of Jesus to rest in? Why would we want to go to the wilderness when we every day can live in the rest of the promised land that is your son Jesus. I pray that you would help us with this. Father, not just for our good, but for your glory. For when your people are resting in right belief, it says to the world that you are a magnificent God. That you can take something that's dead and make it live again. That you can rescue enemies and make us not just your friends, but make us your children. I pray that we would, that you would help our unbelief, Father. Help our wandering hearts. Push us, Father. Help us to help each other. Help broken people here to help broken people. Help us to have a culture of care so that we can reach the people out there with the good news of your son Jesus. We give you praise and send your son's most wonderful name we pray. Amen.